We are live in the Brigido Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start this podcast as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight, it is the final New York Giants Preservation Society meeting for 2014. I will get out of the way, and uh, before introducing the very special guest, I'm going to just turn it over to Gary Minson, the president of the organization, and let Gary run the show. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> and usually we have, you know, Jay is a great interviewer with, with authors and question and answer. Tonight, a little different format. We've got a special guest, Ed Lucas and his family. Ed, why don't you tell us everything you can about your amazing story and success in life. Ed Lucas, everybody. Thank you very much, Gary and Jay. Thank you for having us here. I really appreciate it. And uh, Baseball has been my life. I say that baseball uh, took my sight but gave me a life. I lived in Jersey City, New Jersey as a young boy. My parents lived in the housing project. We didn't really have that much money to go to major league games, but we were fortunate enough to have a triple A team in Jersey City, the Jersey City Giants. And I went to see many of them. And uh, my parents would go to that and we would see these ball players come up to the New York Giants. And in 1946, my father said to me, Ed, we must go to this opening day. Montreal was playing the Giants. He said, it's history, baseball history, something you'll remember for the rest of your life. He said, a black man is playing in professional baseball for the first time, Jackie Robinson. And I was fortunate enough to be there, to actually see him play. And he hit a home run in that game. George Shotgun Chilbert said he was the first white hand that Jackie touched as he was coming home. I remember that day very, very much. Baseball was my life. My uncle Eugene Fury, he loved baseball. He played semi-pro ball. But he gave me a uniform that he wore as a kid or a young man said Eagles on it. I don't know if he played for the Eagles or what, but he gave me that jersey with number four. I wore that every day, no matter how hot it was, and it was a uniform that uh, was all wool, like the old baseball players had. I wouldn't wear anything else during the summer. My mother washed that thing on a scrub board every night to make sure it was clean when I went out, and it was great. We loved going to the Giants in Jersey City, in Roosevelt Stadium, and we started watching some New York Giants on TV, on a 12-inch TV. Then on October 3rd, 1951, I came running home from school to watch the playoffs. Rooting for the Giants. My favorite player on the Giants up to 1949 was Johnny Mize. Johnny Mize was sold to the Yankees. 
I told my father, I'm rooting for the Yankees and the Giants from now on. He said, you can't do that. You can't lose, you can't lose for two teams in New York. I said, my favorite player was on the Yankees. So, running home that day to watch the playoffs, came inside. My father, he worked nights. My mother, she was a professional boxer. She boxed oranges, apples, and potatoes for the uh. A&T. <laughs> <laughs> she, so we were watching the, the game, and the Giants were losing. And my father was sitting there with the rosy beads in his hands, praying the Giants hadn't won since the late 30s. And he's just hoping and praying that they're going to win. And I was chewing bubble gum. And he said, cut that out! And Thompson got up against Branca. He had hit a home run two days previously in Ebbets Field. On the second pitch, Thompson hit one into the left field seats. My father jumped up, ran to the window, started yelling, the Giants won, the Giants won. He pulled out dishes from the closet to put on the table to set up for supper. As he pulled them out, he was so nervous, he dropped all of them and they broke. <laughs> I grabbed my baseball glove and I said to my father, I'm going out to play ball. Now, we didn't have a team or anything. It was just a bunch of kids playing baseball. I ran out. I was so excited. We got a bunch of guys to play ball. Guys and girls, actually. And I was a left-handed pitcher. And I wore glasses. And I said, I have to take my glasses off. I could always see better without them, I felt. Being 12 years old, this is how I felt. Well... I threw a pitch, and the line drive came back and, boom, hit me between the eyes. That was the last thing I ever saw. I was totally blind. I came home. My parents were upset. They didn't know what to do. Took me to the doctor. Of course, there was nothing that they could do. I had detached retinas that were trying to treat it. I thought it was the end of the world. My image of a blind person was someone standing on a corner with a tin cup and a cane begging, begging for money. That's the only time I'd serve a blind person. At the polo grounds, they'd be standing outside there in New York, going shopping with my parents. We would always throw coins in the cup. I said, I don't want to do that. I was so depressed. What can I do? there's nothing out there. I had no image of a blind person doing anything else. I became very, very, very depressed. Didn't want to eat. Stayed in my room. Doctor didn't want me to go to school. Wanted me to rest. All winter. My parents were very, very depressed with me, but of course didn't let me know at the time. And I would put my hand on my eye and Say, can I see anything in my left eye or anything in my right eye? Just to get a little hope every day. Unbeknownst to me, my mother wrote to manager Leo DeRosha of the Giants, telling him of my accident and what it meant and how much we loved the Giants and we watched them on TV and saw them in Jersey City. She said, if you could just send Ed an autograph ball or a Maybe a picture of one of the players. We would really appreciate it. We lift his spirits. He's very down. Well, a letter came back from Leo DeRosha 
and my mother was in shock. There's a letter from Leo saying, bring young Ed over to the polo grounds any day, two and a half hours before game time, and bring him to the clubhouse. Of course, in those days, no women were allowed in the clubhouse. <laughs> so, my mother sat on the porch, if those of you remember the polo grounds, she sat on the porch overlooking the field where the ball players were practicing. Infield practice, batting practice, so forth. And I was brought up to Leo's office. They brought me into his office and put me in a swivel chair. And the attendant said, Mr. DeRosa will be here shortly. He walked in with them and he introduced me. I was honored to meet him. I said, thank you very much for this. I said, will I be going out on the field to meet some of the players from Mr. DeRosa? And he said, no, sir. My heart dropped. He said, you're my guest. And they better come in here and see you because if they don't, you'll hear from, they'll hear from me. He made sure that all the Giants came in. Whitey Rockman, Bobby Thompson, Don Mueller, Sal Evans, Wes Westrom, Sal Magley, Jim Hearn, all these guys. Monty Irvin, who was on crutches at the time. This was June 14, 1952. Monty had broken his leg in spring training and still on crutches. These guys came in and everyone came in with a bottle of Coke, a small bottle of Coke. I don't think DeRocha had so many sodas on his desk in all his life. But they brought the soda in for me. And they talked to me and I interviewed them. What I thought was interviewing, questioning them. It was the greatest day of my young life. The greatest day. And I thought about it and I said, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can go into broadcasting or writing. Just that day there that they gave me. And then my mother, again, writing a letter, not letting me know, to Russ Hodges and Ernie Harwell. And on August the 27th, 1952, we went to the broadcast booth up near the press box in the old polo grounds. Spoke to Ernie for a long time. Gave me a little book. I told him what I wanted to do. I said I was so enthusiastic about meeting the Giants this year and what happened. I would love to get into broadcasting. He said, there's no reason why you can't. He said, you seem to know the game. And then I met Russ. And Russ and I became long life friends. He was a dear friend to the day he died. Russ Hodges was there to help me. Ernie Harwell went on to Baltimore as their announcer in 1954 and I became good friends with Russ. He would bring him into the press box when I would go over and I would talk to him. When the Giants left in 1957, I was there for the last day. I had interviewed many of the Giants. Bonnie O'Toole, who used to run the clubhouse, and the dugout. We ran the dugout. He had a little door that went from outside into the dugout onto the field. He said to me, anytime you want to do any interviews, and I was only a kid, 
can you tell me? I said, sure. So the last day of the 1957 season, my Uncle Gene, Gene Fury, who gave me the uniform, he took me over to the game. I had a big Pentron tape recorder, a huge tape recorder that he had to hold in both arms. And I held on to his arm. And we walked down Coogan's Bluff. He said to me, we're coming to another step, coming to another step. We got there. Then we went and we saw Bonnie O'Toole. He opened the door and led us into the dugout. I said, is there an outlet? I forgot to tell you that we had to plug it. No problem. He said, I get everything for you, Ed. And he plugged it in. And I interviewed many of the Giants that day. Bobby Thompson had come back from Milwaukee. And many of the other Giants were there. I was very, very, very happy to talk to all of them. And I met Mays for the first time. And I interviewed him. And I just sat there talking to him and talking to him. He seemed so excited to talk to me. And I was only a kid. And I hear this guy walking back and forth in the dugout on the floor there. And I hear him saying, who the hell is this young kid here? i got to get a picture of Mays before the game. I figured this may be the only time I ever get to talk to Mays, so I wasn't going to give up my time. (laughs) And Mays sat there and was so relaxed, and we became good friends. Louis a wonderful, wonderful person. And I met so many other Giants that day, too, and interviewed them. That was the last time. Yeah, can I ask what happened to the tapes? Hmm? Whatever happened to the tapes of your interview? Whatever happened to that ta- <clears throat> I don't know. Um, what happened to that William Mays tape? It was on a reel-to-reel tape, and the tape split and broke. So I lost that, because I was playing it so much. <laughs> <laughs> he has a lot of the tapes um, which were saved. And his alma mater, the Seagull University, had them transcribed onto um, CDs. So he's got some really old ones from the late 50s, early 60s. Um, and a lot of them are in the Seagull archives. But I, I you know, I uh, played that tape over Chris and over has a again. Great picture of his dad at Blue Maze today. Same day. That's the last day of the polo Yeah, that's the that's the day I interviewed him. You were that young at one time. It's a great shot. My uncle took that. My uncle Gene Fury took that picture with a brownie camera, and uh, but that was something. But I was in high school, and I started a club in high school called the Diamond Dusters. And I wrote to Alvin Dock, who was then with the Cardinals. And I asked him if he uh, would come up and speak to my club. He wrote back and he said yes. I called out the hotel that morning and said, Alvin, are you all set? He said, Ed, I'm awful sorry I can't do it. He said, Sally, if I set up a dental appointment for me and it's this afternoon. He said, but why don't you call and ask for Wally Moon? He's always very generous in doing these things. So I called back to the hotel and I asked for Wally Moon's room. And I said, may I speak to Mr. Moon? And his voice said, uh, well, it's not Mr. Moon. How can I help you? 
and I told him that I had this club and who I was and so forth and a friend of Alvin Dark. He said, well, my name is Lindy McDaniel. He said, I'm a bonus baby. With I said, oh, I know who you are. And he said, uh, how about if I come up? And he was the first one to come. And after he came, I had Bobby Thompson, Rush Hodges, Phil Rizzuto and Carl Rizzuto. They came up. Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was the first black executive with a major company in the United States, Chop Four Nuts. I wrote to him. I took a lesson from my mother. <laughs> and he said he would love to come. I still had the letter at home from him. And he came and he spent and we talked about a lot of things. I interviewed him. And I wanted to go on to do that. Went to Seton Hall University. Studied communications. And met with Phil Rizzuto. Phil Rizzuto took me under his wing. He uh, wanted to make sure that I could do things like everybody else. So he brought me over to the stadium and met with Jackie Farrell, who was in the publicity department for the Yankees. He started taking me around. Zuda said, you can do it. Well, I got uh, abused by many, many writers and broadcasters. Uh, going into the clubhouse, having a, two seats in the press box, because I always have to have a guide. And I went here, what's this blind guy doing here? What the hell is he doing here? He can't see. He's taking up space at two two writers that can see. Well, he's taking up a lot of space here in the clubhouse so we can't get to the interview. And they would say it loud enough what I called an Irish whisper. <laughs> enough that I could hear it. But uh, I never said anything. Finally, it got into me and I said to Rizzuto, Scooter, I don't know if I can do this. Why not? He said, you went to college? He said, you're doing fine. I said, but Scooter, they are abusing me. They are saying things that I told them what was being said. And he said, hey, don't listen to those naysayers. Come on, he said. Look at me. I was told that I couldn't play ball. I was too small. He said, I didn't listen to him. He said, Casey Stinkle told me to go and get myself a shoeshine box to make a living. He said, don't you listen to them. You go on and do what you've been doing. He said, you'll do fine. Don't let them knock you out of the box. That's not the way it goes. Of course, when the Giants left New York, my heart was broken. I would listen to it on the radio, and Wes Kaida would broadcast the games. And any time they had it broadcast where I could pick up a Pittsburgh game or a Cardinal game, I would listen to them. Rush Hodges, when they came into Philadelphia, I went down there. I had a seeing eye dog. Got a seeing eye dog to go to Seton Hall to travel back and forth by bus three ways every day. <coughs> back and forth. I had a seeing eye dog by the name of Kay, a German shepherd. Her birthday was June 18th. And that was Rush Hodges' birthday. And I would go down to Philadelphia. He would put me up in the 
hotel. He and Horace Stoneham would pay for my hotel room for the weekend. And then he would bring me up into the press box. And I would sit out there with the press. He would have dog biscuits and water for my dog. When he got off the air, Russ always brought out water and biscuits for the dog. He loved animals. My second dog was a Labrador Retriever by the name of Flo. Her birthday was April 19th. And Russ Hodges passed away on April 19th, 1971. Uh, sort of an ironic thing, but there isn't a day that goes and go by that I don't think about Russ Hodges and the scooter because they were the ones that pushed me. They were the ones that were there doing for me. And of course, Willie Mays, he was definitely afraid of dogs. <laughs> and when I was in the hotel, the Warwick Hotel in Philadelphia, and I wanted to interview Willie because he wouldn't allow me to interview him in a clubhouse with the dog near him. I would be sitting on this side of the couch and he would be on the other side of the couch. As long as the dog was in front of my legs and Willie was behind me, he would talk to me for an hour. <laughs> but he, he was a friend of the dog. Hobie Landriff, who became a dear friend that I heard from him recently, he was a catcher with the Giants and when I went down there, I had a deck of rail cards and I played cards with him. I said, listen, you want to play uh, poker? You should have you play poker. I should have a mock deck. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we played. We played cards. And uh, Hobie was great. So he said, I came down. <clears throat> he said, let's go out to dinner. After the game. It was a day game. So I'm waiting outside after the game with my dog and my guide, the fellow that drove me down. And I hear the clubhouse door open and close. It's right on the street in Philadelphia, the old Connie Mac Stadium. And here we go, open and close. About five times it did that. Nobody came out. But I would hear the door open and close. So finally this voice says, when's that guy going to leave with the dog? I want to get the hell out of here. <laughs> and who was it but Sam Jones? Two Pitt Jones who used to pitch for the Cubs, now he pitched for the he was definitely afraid of the dog, so I had to move out of the way <laughs> and tell somebody to tell Hobie Landrup where I was going to be. But it was great times going down to Philadelphia and being there. And then when the Giants came back into New York, when the Mets were born, I would always be there for every game with the Giants and the, and the Mets. And I would always hear from Rush Hodges and and the day he died, that April 19th. Ron Simmons was his partner. He was a great guy. Ron is retired now and he's out in Hawaii. He comes into a giant game every once in a while. Mike Murphy, who was the equipment manager for the Giants, I got to know him real well. He had his 50th anniversary last year with the Giants as the equipment manager. Eddie Logan, of course, was the equipment manager in the Polo Browns. Then his son came to San Francisco, and Murphy, his son told me recently that Murphy was uh, 
and the visitors club house at first until Eddie Wilkins Jr. retired or whatever. And Murphy's been with the Giants ever since. And I've been very fortunate to get to know many of these people right now. I guess my dearest friend on the Giants is Dave Rigetti, the pitching coach. I knew him with the Yankees, and we became real good friends. Many of these ball players from the Giants, Felipe Alou, I, when I see him, and so many other Alou brothers, really wonderful. A great, great, great time, and have great memories. Bob Laurie, who took over the Giants at the Horace Stoneham, someone introduced me to him, and we got to know each other a little bit. And he found out that I was coming out to San Francisco. My buddy Gene, Gene Mel, he uh, said to me, Hey, Ed, I know your dream city in the press box, in the press room at Yankee Stadium. I know your dream is to go to California. I said, Yes, it is. He said, Well, here's what I did. There's a Yankees are going out there, they're going to be in Oakland. He said, and The Giants are going to be home. 1989, this is. He said, So, Let's go out there and see what we can do. My friend Dan Schlossberg, who's a writer, wrote to Bob Laurie and told him that I would be out there. Bob Laurie wrote back to me and said, we want you to come out and give you a day and you throw out the first ball. That was one of the greatest throws doing that, throwing out the first ball. And as uh, many people know, the Giants are playing tonight. My heart's going to be with San Francisco. As always, I, I still love the team. I have such great memories of the ballplayers and the people that were there that gave me the push and went on. There are many people that could have just said, the hell with it, Ed. You're blind, you can't do it. But to me, my blindness is not a handicap. It's only an inconvenience. One is your foundation, and two, I know uh, you're very much involved with, you some Yankee fans here, with, with Derek Jeter Publishing. Could you illuminate the, uh, the crowd about, about those two things? Right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, my foundation, because of the ballplayers having foundations and seeing what they did, I felt it's only right that they had been my mentors, and I wanted to go out and start my own foundation. Now... I had a golf tournament with Phil Rizzuto for many years for the blind, and then Gene Michael took over, and Gene has been wonderful. Gene helped me, and we started a foundation. Um, he had the golf tournament for our foundation. It's going to be August 24th next year. We have many celebrities there, and the money goes to organizations for the blind, visually impaired, and disabled. My wife, Allison, as you well know, is visually impaired. She's what they call legally blind. She graduated Seton Hall University nursing school, valedictorian, and then right after she became a nurse, she had some problems with her eyes and detached retinas, and she's what they call legally blind now. She sees for both of us. 
and uh, <laughs> and Seton Hall named a scholarship after both of us to give to the disabled at Seton Hall. So part of that money from our foundation goes to the disabled students at Seton Hall for equipment that they may need for school or books or whatever it may be. And then organizations like the Seeing Eye Incorporated where I had four dogs and it was wonderful and they gave me independence. And other organizations and were both diabetics so the diabetes organization we contribute to them too. So as time goes by we're earning more and more money with some of our fundraisers and we're always looking for new ideas for a fundraiser. And uh, that's what our organization does. We try to help as many people because people were so wonderful to me and went out of their way to do for me that I feel great giving back. In case you missed it, we have a helmet here. Whoever wants to contribute, uh, when we depart, all the money will go to Ed and he could uh, use it as he sees fit. And the book? Now, about the book. Um, well, a movie was supposed to be made eight years ago. <laughs> and uh, every time something happened, oh, this we didn't get the money, we didn't do this, we didn't do that. So in my contract, it was that we uh, had in the contract that I couldn't write a book until two years after the movie came out. So I spoke to the movie producer and I said, listen, uh, I'm not redoing the contract. He said, why? We put a lot of money into this. I said, well, I need the book. I want to write a book. <clears throat> so he agreed that he would release me from the contract with the book. And my son Chris, who has gone out of his way so much to help me and do things and push me, he's more my inspiration than I am to him, but he said, we got to go out and get a, a literary agent. Can't do it on your own. We found a literary agent. We met her last November the 4th. And she said, let me see what I can do. Can't do anything until after January or until after the new year. Sometime in the middle of January, I got a phone call from her saying that Simon and Schuster was interested in your book and they would like you to sign with them. She said, but there's a catch. I thought, oh my God, there's always a catch to something. <laughs> and uh, so I said, what is it? She said, well, somebody else is going into the publishing business and they want your book to be the first adult book that they're going to publish. I said, well, I don't know anybody in the publishing business. Oh yeah, you know him very well. I said, I do? She said, yes. She said, Derek Jeter. <laughs> So Derek Jeter has a publishing company now through uh, Simon & Schuster and uh, we signed a contract with them and Lord willing everything works out, next April our book will come out. about the organization and tonight's meeting so uh, once I get a copy 
I'll let you guys know. Any, does anybody have any questions? You said for, April 15 or April 16? April 15? Uh, next year, 2015. Sure, there any, okay. any questions for Ed? Where do you live now, Ed? Uh, Union, New Jersey. Okay. Allison, did you ever think about uh, those archives, having copies made and donating them to the Hall of Fame? I'm sure they would love all of that material. It's, it sounds amazing. Um. Well, you know, that's not a bad idea. Uh, Ed is a very close friend with the president, Jeff Eilson, so I'm sure that if Ed speaks to Jeff about it, I'm sure Jeff would want them. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. because he's got, you know, and I know we're here with a bunch of giant fans, but he has incredible rare interviews with uh, Jackie and Campanella, but um, Stengel, I mean, a lot of things that you couldn't get anymore. I mean, it's really incredible, and I'm sure that the whole thing would love to have. I think it's something you should really look into. Mm-hmm. And if I, I actually, uh, first a pleasure to be here. Um, one one question I've always wondered, and maybe you were at this event. I was wondering in 1962, the first time the Giants came back to the polo grounds to play the Mets, if you were there, and what that atmosphere might have been like. I was there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I always wondered what that might have been like. You know, here's a new National League team. Yeah, right, right. You know, this, this team, unfortunately, banned in the city. There were many, 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 many Giant fans there. Uh, also, the, uh, you know, they weren't growing that well uh, in the first season up until the Giants, when the Giants came in, and Willie came in with the Giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe there was still others to play in New York, I don't know. But um, there was a packed house the first night the Giants came back. Wow. And I, uh, Andy, we, we've done a few of the breakout tournaments, and Phil Rizzuto is one of the greatest guys. When he was talking to you about these guys who were giving you a hard time, right. you already said naysay or not Huckleberry? <laughs> 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 no, he, <laughs> he, he, he was very upset because he saw how upset I was, but. Scooter was there for me. He came. He came to my house when I lived in Jersey City as a kid, just to take me out for a ride and tell me, you know, don't give up, don't give up. He came to the high school when I started my Diamond Dusters Club and had you know all these guys come. And I was very fortunate to pick up the phone and call all these people or write them a letter and have them come. And but Rizzuto was always there. Rizzuto, no matter what, he he always went out of his way. And even with uh, my young boys, he would call me up and he'd say, listen, I have a lot of clothes that you know, this company gave me. He said, your boys are my size. So I said, okay. And he said, you're going to be home? I said, yes, I'm going to bring some things over. So he would bring pants and shirts and sweaters. Then he said, I can't wear all these. Your boys can wear them. So Chris was very proud. And he... Went to school the next day, wearing a sweater that Scooter gave him. And he was telling all the kids in school that, you know, Perizzuto gave me this and so forth. So that night, we're having supper and the doorbell rings. And I answer the door and the kid says, uh, Mr. Lucas, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure, what's the matter? And I knew who he was. And he said, uh, listen, I just want to tell you, he said, 
Chris was really telling a lot of lies in school today. <laughs> and I want to let you know. I said, what was you saying? She said, Phil Rizzuto came to the house and gave him a sweater. And he was wearing that to school. I said, yeah. He said, you know who I mean? You know, Phil Rizzuto, the guy that does the money store and everything. I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said yes, I do. I said, he's been a friend of mine since I've been 12 years old. He said, oh, the Phil Rizzuto, the money store? And I said, yeah, he was a Yankee ball player and he's a Yankee announcer. Oh, so he wasn't lying then, huh? I said, no, he wasn't lying. I said, so you can tell your friend tomorrow he wasn't lying. <laughs> Ed, you and uh, your wife hold the distinction about Yankee Stadium that many of them may not know. Do you want to share it? Sure, absolutely. You have to. Uh, I uh, called up and I asked if it would be possible if we could be married at Yankee Stadium. And I had to message with someone in the media relations, and Rick Cerrone, who was then the media relations director for the Yankees, called me back and said, Ed, uh, was this you that made this request? I said, yeah. He said, good. He said, call Gina. I want you to talk to her. And uh, she wants to meet you. So I called her up. We went over there. We went over to meet her. And uh, she said, well, first of all, I have to tell you that Mr. Steinbrenner said under no, no circumstances would anyone be allowed to get married at home plate. She was in charge of non-baseball events. And he told her, if you ever allowed anybody to get married at home plate, you would be fired. So when she got this note from him, she called him and said, listen, you told me this and, you know, I got this note. Is this right? He said, yes, it is. He said, we feel he's part of our family. And if that's what he wants, that's what he's going to get. So she said to me, well, pick out a menu. We'll have the reception here. She said, the only thing I suggest is you don't order hard liquor because it's very expensive in New York. <laughs> so I said, okay. So we ordered beer, wine, and soda. And then we, you know, signed a contract with them, gave them a... I gave them a check as a down payment or a deposit, whatever you want to call it. And <clears throat> the day of the wedding, that morning, we were married on Friday, March the 10th. I received a call from Rick Sharon. And he says, uh, Ed, listen, George can't be there, but he wants you to know that, you know, he's going to be with you in spirit and not to worry about a thing. Gina's going to give you back your check. I said, what happened? <laughs> By the way, I thought maybe you bounced or something. <laughs> so he said, she, he said, no, George is picking up the entire tab. No matter what it costs, he'll pay for the reception. He had the uh, grounds crew have the field look as if it was opening day, seats around the infield from one dugout to the other, and scoreboard operator had a sign up there, congratulations, Allison and Ed, on their special day. And it had the speaker that everyone could hear at the uh, home plate. And we had the ceremony at the home plate. And a friend of mine who was in the Phantom of the Opera sang at the wedding. And then we went upstairs, and who was there but uh, Penny Marshall and Elliot Abbott, who was the producer of the movie, 
and hopefully that will be coming out next October. They're still working on it, but I'm counting my, you know, it's only eight years. So, <laughs> so that, that's what happened. And since he paid you, of course, got the hard liquor then, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he, no, he, uh, in fact, he had the top liquor at the wedding. He, he had everything, he paid for everything. Anybody else for any final comments? Barry? That's going to play you. Who's going to play you in the movie? Mommy. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is the title of the movie? Well, right now it's it's called Ed Lucas. But like everything in Hollywood, has gone through a whole list. It's, the script is, you know, every actor says we love it, but for whatever reason, it's been back and forth. So if you go online and read about it, Stanley Tucci was attached for a while, and then they said, oh, he's too old to play. No. We're looking for somebody younger, so... It's gone from everybody from Robert Downey Jr., Bradley Cooper, even George Clooney. It's, it's gone up and down the list. So hopefully, we'll see. You know, there's a bunch of names out there. Maybe Ed Lucas of the Miami Marlins. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you got to tell that story, Ed. What story is that? Ed Lucas of the Marlins, meeting Ed Lucas. Oh, yeah. Ed Lucas, uh, Andy was with me, and... Uh, I went in, I introduced myself, I said, Ed Lucas, this is Ed. he said, I know who you are, I'm sitting on, on the um, computer, he said, and I heard about you, and so I did a nice interview with him, and Andy took a picture uh, with uh, Ed Lucas and myself, and he's uh, a very nice, very nice gentleman. So, you don't know he's a utility man for the, uh, the Marlins. Number 59, right? Hmm? Number 59 on the uh, Marlins. <laughs> that's Ed Lucas and Ed Lucas. Oh, that's right. <laughs> We're going to see Andy, right? Andy. Right. That's a great shot. That's great shots. Anybody else? Mr. Prince. Mr. Prince is a, uh, an amazing blogger of the New York Mets. Does a wonderful job and knows more about the Mets than how he wrote, I think. Wow. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of Howie Rose or broadcasters in general, I'm wondering, uh, you know, do you listen to games more on the radio or listen to them for the television? Are there particular broadcasters who, from your perspective, do a really good job? Well, I, I listen to it primarily on the radio, uh, sometimes on television. But, you know, I, I like to uh, listen to other teams and broadcasters throughout the country. And, uh, you know, I'm prejudiced with. Rush Hodges and Phil Zuto and people like that I'll always be prejudiced with them because they turn my life around for me tell them your influence on Michael Kay how you, my, how you change Michael Kay's way of calling him well, well Michael Kay he was uh, <clears throat> on the radio he left newspapers and was on the radio with uh, John Sterling very knowledgeable and he was saying different things like you know the pitcher picks up the rosin uh, the batter steps out of the batter's box. A ground ball went down and hit the uh, top. Things. And I said to him one day, I said, Michael, I said, I want to thank you for something. He said, what's that? I said, you know, the way you broadcast and what you do. So what do I do? I said, you describe things to people that can't see. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, like for instance, Tell me what color the uniform is. Tell me what, you know, what they're wearing. In those days, the White Sox had uh, shorts, <laughs> and, you know, and different uh, things. So 
he started to describe the uniforms and the interlocking NY and no name on the back of course and he did that for many many years until he went to TV and he said to me well I can't do it anymore now Ed they can see it on TV <laughs> Joe DiMaggio? Yeah. You mean the, uh, where he described the game to me? Yeah. Well, that was uh, opening day, 1976, uh, in the press box in the new Yankee Stadium. And uh, one of the media relations people came up to me and said, listen, would you mind if Joe DiMaggio sits next to you? I said, no, not at all. <laughs> he said, oh, some people don't like him. I said, oh, what are you kidding? I said, he's always been wonderful to me. So he came, sat down, and I had a bag with my, I had a radio with an earphone, and I'm pulling out my radio and earphone for the game five minutes away and so forth. And he said to me, hey, what are you doing, Ed? I said, I'm taking my radio and earphone out, I said, to uh, listen to the game and see what's going on like you do, you know? Put that away. He said, I'll call the game for you. <laughs> and he called the whole game, and that was the first game. Um, Rudy May was pitching for the Yankees and Ford hit a home run, first home run in the Yankee Stadium off of Rudy May. And he called that. And that was very touching for me. Anyone, one last one? Tell us about the presidents that you've met while covering baseball. I didn't hear you. Presidents of the United States. Oh, I've met, I've been very fortunate to meet uh, four presidents of the United States. Uh, Nixon, the two Bushes and Clinton and I remember opening day one year they gave out a Yankee magazine they wrote an article about Yogi some of his wits some of the things he said and uh, I'm sitting in the press box and someone comes up and taps me on the shoulder and I turned around and I said yes they said uh, Ed Richard Nixon here <laughs> I said Yes, Mr. President, I stood up and he said, uh, I just want to tell you, I read the Yogi Berra story and I thought it was funny. You gave me some good laughs. I really appreciated it. And I asked him if he would sign it for me and he, he was very gracious and I had maybe a half a dozen times after that, anytime he saw me at the ballpark, he always came over and said hello. Thank you very much. You and your family, even if you don't come and speak, you know, you're always welcome to be guests at uh, one of our meetings, and I'm sure, Jay, you want to close down anything, Jay? Uh, no, I think, uh, and Ed, the final word is yours. Well, just want to say thank you to uh, both of you for having me here and the club for having me here. Uh, my family and I really appreciate it, and we love baseball. Anytime I can speak baseball, 24 hours a day is enough for me. Anybody wants to donate to the uh, Lucas Foundation, the helmet's there. Thank you all for coming, and we'll, we'll see you in January. Hopefully with some hardware. Yeah. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you very much.